If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, the Old Testament book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. I'm going to turn to chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 22 this morning. <clears throat> Exodus 2, 11 through 22 will be our text for today. With the Word of God open before us, let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word. We ask that You would unstop our ears, that we might hear Your voice, that You would open our eyes, that we might see Your Son, that You would soften our hearts, that we might receive Your truth, and would You etch it eternally upon our hearts, that we might walk in faithfulness before You. Help each person here, Lord, to listen diligently and to apply faithfully by the power of your Spirit in them what you would have us to know about you and about our relationship to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, <clears throat> An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy <clears throat> and inerrant and inspired word. Well, Augustine of Hippo, you know, I'm sure, that great theologian of the early church, 354 to 430 AD, wrote in his famous Confessions, speaking of the Lord, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. I wonder, <clears throat> are you restless? Are you unsettled? Most of us have experienced what it's like to be apart from our family, 
whether it's going away to college for years or going to summer camp for several weeks as a young person or going on a long trip perhaps across the ocean, we've had those feelings of being unanchored, of being restless, of feeling homeless. Some here have made those journeys intentionally in order to try to find a new home for yourself, living here or there, trying this or that, all to experience the feeling of finding my people, of being settled somewhere. Some of these journeys, I'm sure our testimonies would reveal, have been marked by various frustrations, various disappointments, or various sins, some great and grievous sins, I'm sure. And in many cases, these journeys are marked by an intentional departure from the church, a walking away from the faith, a desire to go out there and find something else that might give you a feeling of peace or settledness or home. But we all know that whether for the Christian or otherwise, there's only one place that we can truly call home, and that's with God, isn't it? Our hearts are restless until they make their home with God, and indeed, He makes His home with us. And we will feel restless apart from Christ and His people in this world. And I don't mean home in the typical sense, the place where my bed is or where my mail is delivered. I mean home in the colloquial sense, where your heart is, where your loyalty lies, where you feel at rest. Many places in the world vie for our hearts to call them home. They want us to settle down and dwell there. You can think of perhaps your friend group or your sorority or fraternity. They want that to be your home. Those are your people. Social media wants you to settle in and park your car in the driveway in front of YouTube reels and be entertained until you die. The world wants you to call it home. This is where you belong, it says. Give me your heart and you'll find happiness. But God says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus says that if you love him, he and the Father will make their home with you and he'll bring you to be in his home forever. Well, this morning I want us to see Moses on this journey towards finding home. We're going to witness his movement through a long period of time, in fact, in his early life as he tries to find his people, to find his home. And we'll see this through his encounter with three different groups of people. Uh, Moses will encounter the Egyptians and the Israelites and the Midianites over the course of this 40-year span of time in his life that we just read about in Exodus chapter 2. And in the process of trying to find his home, he'll do things he shouldn't do and respond to situations in ways he shouldn't, and he'll flee and he'll settle and he'll marry and he'll have children. And all the while, don't miss this, God is preparing him for the work that he's called him to. And so I want us to see as, as Moses interacts with the Egyptians and then with the Israelites, and then with the Midianites, his journey to find home. Now, according to Acts chapter 7, I'm sure you recall in Acts chapter 7, that's Stephen's great uh, speech, his biblical theological overview of God's dwelling with his people throughout the Old Testament age. 
Um, and Stephen mentions this account in Acts chapter 7, and he tells us that Moses is now 40 years old. So between verses 10, uh, well, 9 really, when uh, Moses' mother weaned the child and gave him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and verse 11, 40 years have passed. He's a grown man. One day when Moses had grown up, it doesn't mean he's growing up, he's a young boy. He's 40 years old. He spent a lifetime in the school of Egypt. He's been raised in Pharaoh's daughter's household. He's been given all the education, all of the understanding of their culture, all of the language, all of the privilege, all of the wealth of Egypt was at his fingertips. He had it all. And in those 40 years, 40 years, God has been equipping and preparing him for what he's going to call him to do beginning in chapter 3, which, by the way, is still 40 years away. Just briefly, and this is kind of an aside from the text, it is worth noting that between verse 11, or excuse me, verse 10 and verse 25 of Exodus chapter 2, 80 years passes. 80 years. And all the while, God is preparing Moses for the ministry he will call him to. Again, just as a note, you may be presently in a season of difficulty or struggle. And while time may appear to be standing still for you, you need to know that God's timing is always perfect. And that he always redeems the days for his glory, whether they be a couple days or a couple years or many decades There are no quick fixes in God's economy. We often find ourselves waiting on the Lord, don't we? And Moses, while he was being raised in the palace and then tending the sheep in freedom out in Midian, Israel was still suffering under oppression the whole time, 80 years. Two generations came and went under the yoke of slavery before God chose to send Moses back. Don't forget that in our midst of difficulty. God had not forgotten. He never forgot, but he was working out his perfect plan according to his perfect timing. Well, Moses is now 40. One day, it tells us, let's say he's 40 plus one, and the author of the Hebrews says that he has considered all that it means to be an Egyptian. He knows all of the wealth that's available to him, all the privilege that's his, the life of ease, frankly, that he was essentially born into or adopted into, and he considers all that Egypt has to offer. He, his, he looks like an Egyptian. Look down with me at verse 19. Jethro, or excuse me, Reuel is what he's referred to here in Exodus chapter 2. Uh, but Moses' father-in-law, his daughters say, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. He looked just like them. He looked just like the Egyptians. He was probably dressed like an Egyptian. He was familiar with their language. He maybe spoke it fluently. It, evidence shows us that most Egyptians had men had shaved heads and so he very likely looked just like any other Egyptian royal son would have looked those were his people for a time and Moses considered what it meant to call them his people and to be aligned with them and united with them and the author of Hebrews says that he looked at it all and he said no to Egypt he said no to all that Egypt had to offer even though Saying no cost him everything. 
It forced him into a life on the run, a life of suffering, a life of wilderness, a life of the complaining outbursts of the Israelites over 40 years in the wilderness. He chooses rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And what we see here is Moses is beginning to mature in his faith and understanding of the God of the covenant. He wants to be aligned with God's people. He leaves the worldly life and all its allures behind in order to be accounted as a part of the covenant community of God. And this is part of what makes him ready later, 40 years later, for the call God will put on his life. It's his alignment with, his love for the people of God. And it's going to cost him. Look at verse 15 with me. When Pharaoh heard about this, this now obviously it's the death of the Egyptian, which Moses did because of his decision to leave Egypt and join himself to Israel. He wanted to kill him, and so Moses has to flee. It costs him literally everything. He looks at Egypt and he says, these have been my people, but they're not my people. This is not home for me. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have had family reject you or persecute you or mock you due to your faith. It might mean that your family ceases supporting you or offering financial stability or security to you. And leaving the old life behind, whether it's unbelieving family or unbelieving friend groups or opportunities that may have been presented to you in the world, costs us. But Jesus promises us something, doesn't he, in Mark chapter 10. He says that something greater than everything we leave behind is ours when we choose to follow him because of the gospel. In Mark 10, 29 and 30, he says, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not in this lifetime receive a hundredfold in return and eternal life in heaven. It's not that he says, if you leave everything behind for the gospel now, in heaven, I'll build you a big mansion by the river. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't, this is not a, a tent revival song that there's a mansion by and by in the sky for those who suffer in this life. There is eternal life with God in glory for those who follow him in the gospel. But he says, in this time, now, in this life, you receive a hundredfold when you leave Egypt behind and come to me in faith. Where is that hundredfold? Where are my hundred mothers and sisters and brothers and fathers and children and lands? They're right here. I'm looking at them right now. When we leave Egypt behind and say, those are not my people, and I'm willing to lose everything, to count all of it as loss, to say no to the allures of the world, all the wealth, all the fame, all the comfort, all the ease, all the fun, all the entertainment, all the family even, look what we get now in this lifetime, one another, our inheritance in the saints and light. We have each other. You are my brothers and my sisters. And we're each other's. And that's what Moses is going to experience as he leaves Egypt behind and encounters Israel. As he moves, makes his way towards Israel, wanting to be, by faith, joined with the people of God. <clears throat> Again, Hebrews chapter 11, we must turn there to see what it says. Uh, Moses was born and hidden for three months by his parents 
it tells us in verse 23. And then in verse 24, notice this, it wasn't just ethnic allegiance to the Israelites, but it was faith that caused him to refuse Pharaoh and all his wealth, and instead to choose mistreatment with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, by faith in God and in his covenant promises, Moses chose to align himself with the people of God. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, something more. And so Moses encounters Egypt, and he encounters them in his 40 years of childhood and young adulthood as he grows up in that system of Egypt, and he rejects it, and he rejects it most expressly here in verse 12. He sees an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrew people. Notice with me in verse 11, it says this twice, he went out to his own people, and then in verse, uh, later in the verse, one of his people, it says. Moses is identifying himself with Israel now choosing the reproach of Christ rather than all the wealth of Egypt. And when he sees one of his people being mistreated, he looks this way, and he looks that way, and he kills the Egyptian man, and he buries him in the sand. He encounters this Egyptian beating the Hebrew, and and he reacts viscerally. It's a testimony, to be sure, of the character of Moses that he loves justice, He's concerned for justice, isn't he? And he has compassion for the oppressed. He cares about people who are being oppressed and beat down and enslaved, and he wants to do something about it. And those character traits are a part of what God will develop over the years, which will enable him to serve faithfully as the shepherd of Israel in the wilderness. But right now, Moses acts hastily. He acts foolishly. He acts sinfully in killing someone and taking the life of a man. Moses responds to this situation as a deliverer, as a protector, as a savior, but he does so hastily and apart from the plan of God. Now, there's debate about the legitimacy of this. Maybe he was saving this man's life, and the text seems to indicate that the Egyptian was beating the Hebrew servant uh, to the point of death, and Moses steps in. But the fact that he killed him in response, and in fact, what uh, Hebrew says, or uh, excuse me, Acts says, is that he avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Perhaps the Hebrew servant had already died. Moses circumvents God's law and his will by killing this man and acting impulsively and in immaturity. Now, over the years, God will sharpen and develop this trait in him, his character of justice and compassion. But at this point, he responds in a way that he should not have. But ultimately, what he's doing here is he's putting Egypt behind him, and he's aligning himself with the people of Israel. And one of the reasons that we know that what he did was wrong is because he looks around first to make sure no one's paying attention. That's not the, uh, the behavior of someone who's doing justice. And then later in verse 14, when it's found out of him, He's horrified to discover that people know what he's done. So Moses, uh, his first encounter with the Egyptians lasts for some 40 years, but God uses it to prepare him for what's next, and he decides that this is not my home. Now, maybe you have been wandering from God for many, many years, 
I don't assume that there are people in here who haven't been away from the church or apart from God for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Do you see what God is doing here in Moses' life? He's taking a man who had been inculcated with all of the ways of Egypt, all of the things of the world for four decades of his life, and he's pulling all of that out of him and redeeming him for his purpose. And he could do that for anyone here, anyone, no matter how long you've walked away from the church, no matter how long you've rejected God, no matter how many sinful things you've done in your life, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, God is able to redeem any who come to him in faith, any who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And he's doing it with Moses now. And so Moses, now we move to his encounter with the Israelites. In verse 11, again, it tells us that he went out to his own people twice. It's, it's highlighting for us the fact that Moses is identifying himself with the people of God. And he leaves Pharaoh's house due to faith, faith in the God of Israel. And he considers the reproach of Christ of belonging now to these, his people, more treasure, more valuable than everything that Egypt had to offer him. I don't think that we can really wrap our minds around the privilege and wealth and opportunity that Moses had as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. How great his life would have been. How easy it would have been. How neat and clean and safe it would have been. And he says no to all of that for the sake of Christ's people. I wonder if the date October 26, 1967 means anything to you. On October 26, 1967, former senator and presidential candidate John McCain's plane was shot down over Hanoi. He was a lieutenant commander in the Navy. And upon ejecting from his plane, both of his arms and one of his legs were shattered. Unable to move, he was captured by the North Vietnamese, and he spent five and a half years as a POW in North Vietnam. Now, less than a year into McCain's imprisonment, his father was named commander of the U.S. forces in the Pacific. And so his father was a four-star admiral in the Navy and was named commander of all of the U.S. military forces in the Pacific during the Vietnam War, 1968. And the North Vietnamese saw this as an opportunity for a sort of PR win for them. If they released Admiral McCain's son, they would basically feel like they had him in their pocket. And they also knew that by releasing a privileged POW, it would demoralize all of the rest of the POWs. Every private and every buck sergeant and everybody else, every young lieutenant who was unable to be released because they didn't have a special family member to win them back would be left there to rot. And when McCain found out that they were talking about releasing him, he refused to be released. He refused to be released from his POW camp because of what they refer to as the prisoner of war code of conduct, which says that prisoners must be released in the order in which they were captured. And he refused to go first. And it cost him four and a half years of torture and almost his life. 
McCain, his loyalty to his fellow POWs was worth more to him than all of the medical benefits that freedom would have afforded him. All of the food he would have eaten and drink he would have drank. All of the embraces he would have received from his family. He considered loyalty to his fellow POWs more important than all of that. And if John McCain could endure four and a half more years of suffering for the prisoner of war code of conduct, how much more should Christ's people be willing to endure the reproach of this world in light of the people of God? How much more willing should we be for the cause of Christ to consider what it means to be aligned with the covenant people of God? Losing all that the world has to offer, losing all that the world can give us, the privilege of being counted as one of God's people. And it really boils down to the question of what do you prize the most? Do you prize Christ above all other affections? Are there other things in your heart or mind that come close to comparing to Him, that vie for your allegiance and worship? Are you satisfied in Him alone? Moses considered everything Egypt had to offer him nothing. It was nothing. And he chose rather a life of slavery and being on the run than all the money and all the leisure that Egypt could offer him. And I wonder, I wonder, would we do the same? Well, the text shows us here in verse 11 how Moses is being prepared for his future ministry. He's really, in verse 11, immediately being conformed into the character of God. We saw that he, uh, he was concerned for the covenant people of God, but look at what it says here in verse 11. It says, he saw an Egyptian. He looked on the people's burdens. Those two terms there are reflective of the way that God looks at us in our affliction. Jump down to the very end of the chapter. Look at verse 25 with me, and we'll look at this together next week in greater detail. God heard the groaning of the people of Israel, and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. It's a compassionate look with which God views His people in their affliction. It's the same compassionate look with which Christ looked out on the crowds who were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, and He had compassion on them. And Moses is being transformed now before our very eyes into a Savior for the people of Israel, but He's not ready yet. He's being prepared. He's having these experiences of, of seeing injustice and rising up against it, of having compassion on people and, and wanting to care for them. And in fact, we see in verse 14, he's also experiencing what it's like to be rejected by the people he came to save. Who made you prince and judge over us, the Israelite says? Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Stephen, in his martyrdom speech, says in Acts 7.35 that he thought they would understand that he was bringing salvation to them by his actions. But they didn't, did they? These Israelites were hard-hearted, and they weren't ready for deliverance yet. And I wonder if you hear it there in the text. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He came to His own people, but His own people did not receive Him, did they? We're far more like the Israelites than we are like God sometimes. We're stubborn, and perhaps you're stubborn, and you've been rejecting the offer of salvation that God has held out before you in His Son, Jesus Christ, and He extends His arms to all people. He says, anyone who's hungry or thirsty, come to me, and I'll give you food and drink without price. Anyone who's tired and weary, come to me, and I'll give you rest. If anyone believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. And you stubbornly, like one of these Israelites says, who made you Savior? Who made you God? Who, gets, who told you that I have to listen to you? My friends, don't harden your hearts against God like these Israelites do against Moses. We can be sure that these Israelites, over the course of the next 40 years of enslaved labor, very likely did not see the exodus in their lifetime. And God offers His salvation to anyone who will believe. To anyone who will believe. But sometimes we harden our hearts against Him, don't we? And we refuse to believe and to accept what's been offered to us freely in Jesus Christ. Well, Moses wants to align himself with these Israelites. He wants to come here and rescue them from the Egyptian and then rescue them from each other, he says to the one who was in the wrong. Why are you striking your companion? Moses wants so much for the people of Israel to accept him as one of their own because he's trying to find this home, the people to which he can align himself and God's going to use him mightily in their future. And of course, he joins himself to them because of his faith. But at this early part of his journey, we find that he fails over and over again, doesn't he? He kills the Egyptian, good intentions, bad idea. He gets ahead of God's plan. He tries to rescue these Israelites from each other. And that we see here that this Part of Moses' journey, this preparation in Moses' journey, drives him out of the land of Egypt and into the land of Midian. It pushes him away from even the people of God here in Israel and to the land of Midian, and he flees because he finds out that his life is in danger. And I think some of this is due to Moses' impatience. It's not unironic, I suppose, that Moses is the one who will stand on the shores of the Red Sea and tell the people of Israel to be still, to wait, to do nothing and be silent and wait for God who will be your salvation. Here, he's trying to be their salvation. He's trying to be a savior for Israel in Exodus chapter 2. And it will take a few failures before he realizes that it's only God who can be the salvation of his people Israel. And so Moses needs a little patience and he's going to learn it by spending 40 years living with his mother-in-law. So Moses is being developed by God. I find that this lack of patience is the case for many people who want to go into ministry. Many young men who want to enter into ministry, they can't wait to preach. They can't wait to lead the people of God. They can't wait to counsel and care. They just don't necessarily want to take the many years that it requires to be equipped to do so faithfully. Many young people in relationships, and perhaps you're one of them here with us this morning, you can't wait to get married. You can't wait to be in that relationship, to experience everything that marriage affords you. 
and you're impatient. You're not willing to wait until you are a mature man ready to lead a young lady in the home, or you're a mature young lady ready to live apart from your parents in submission to your husband as head of your home in a way that honors God and does good for the covenant children he may bless you with. And so let me encourage all of us to a little more patience, my young friends here who are anxious to get married, anxious to grow up, anxious to go out on your own, let the Lord use this current season you're in to prepare you and equip you and develop you into a mature man or woman of God. Young men, some of our students under care who are anxious to go into ministry, be patient with the process, with your education, with all the papers you're writing and the languages you're learning and the sermons you're preaching, and wait for the Lord to develop you and equip you and make you ready. And maybe parents who are anxiously waiting to be empty nesters, enjoy the privilege it is to disciple your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord while they're still in your home. Be patient with the Lord's timing and cherish the moments God gives you with the people that he's given to you for care. <clears throat> well, Moses makes his way to Midian. He flees and he finds himself in Midian in verse 16. And just a few things I want to mention from this last little section of our text from this morning before we close. <clears throat> Notice how God is already developing maturity in Moses as he wanders around trying to find his people in his home. We saw back in chapter 2, verse 12, that he struck down the Egyptian and killed him. And now in verse 17, we find Moses sitting by a well in the land of Midian, and these seven young ladies are trying to gather water, but a group of bully shepherds comes in and drives them away. And Moses, rather than reacting the way he did before, you see his lesson's been learned and he's growing up some, now Moses simply drives them away and stands up and saves them and even goes on to water their flock. Do you see how he's being developed into a shepherd by God through these circumstances? He's acting with greater maturity. He still cares about justice. He's still concerned for the plight of the oppressed and those who are bullied. He still brings salvation, it says. Moses saved them, it says in verse 17. He's still the same Moses, but God is beginning to settle him into his role. He's beginning to mature and grow, and he's being prepared for his time with Israel in the wilderness. Now, we notice that Reuel, his soon-to-be father-in-law, wants him to dwell with them. They come home, and, and he's shocked that his daughters are home so quickly. Apparently, this was a regular occurrence, and they didn't get home till much later. Why are you home so soon today? And we mentioned this earlier. They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. They still think Moses is an Egyptian. He hasn't quite made the full transformation yet into an Israelite, although he will. He certainly will. But they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherd. And he says, well, where is he? Why did you leave him out there by the well? Bring him in that he may eat with us. And it tells us in verse 21 that Moses was content to dwell with the man and began to have a family there in Midian. It's not for nothing that this is the same Midian, the same location that God will have Moses bring Israel out to come worship him in 40 years. And so even in his uh, sojourning in the land of Midian, he's being prepared and equipped for the later role God will call him to fill. And here we see that he is acknowledging the fact that he's a sojourner in a foreign land. Notice that he names his son Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner 
in a foreign land. Now, the way that Moses says that could lead us to two conclusions. Either he's saying, I was a sojourner in Egypt as a foreigner in that land, or, which is true, or he's saying, I have become a sojourner in this land because Midian is not my home, which is also true. You see how Moses is starting to hang his hat in the front door of Israel? Egypt, I was a foreigner there. Those are not my people. I have left the world behind and all that it has to offer. Midian, this is just temporary. It's a temporary tent that I'm pitching here in Midian. Just for a time, I'm a sojourner here too. My real home, my people, my brothers, that's Israel. That's the people of God. Where's your home? Are you a temporary dweller out there in the world, like we all are in this earthly pilgrimage? Living in tents, wandering from place to place until we get to that promised land that God has built for us? Or have you built a house there? Do you call them your people? Are you an Egyptian at heart? Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29 as we bring this thing to a close. In Jeremiah chapter 29, God speaks to exiled Israel just as he speaks to us. And he says, I have sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiplying there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Moses is caring for his father-in-law's sheep. He's paying attention to the community in which he's been planted in his exile. He's having a family there. He is multiplying and increasing and having covenant children. And this is what we've been commanded to do. We're no longer Egyptians. We've left all that behind. We're part of the people of God, and yet still we dwell in Midian, in the wilderness, waiting for God to bring us to the promised land. And while we're here, we need to be those sort of people, those sorts of Christians who are concerned for the community in which we live and the government under which we're protected and the neighbors with which we live and the co-workers with which we work and all of the people around us because they need to experience the welfare of God, which is good for us. And we want them to come to know the Lord and join themselves to the people of God. Don't miss this. When Moses comes back to Midian in Exodus 18 and 19, his father-in-law and their family come there also. And when they leave Egypt in Exodus 13, who goes up with them? A whole mixed ethnic multitude of people. Because God intends for people from every tribe and language and nation to join themselves to the people of God and find a home with us here. Be concerned for the welfare of our city. Moses murdered a man. Moses killed a man in verse 13. Forty years later, 
in chapter 3, God is going to call upon him to be the redeemer of Israel and bring them out of Egypt. I don't know what sins you've committed during your wandering. I don't know what you've done even yesterday that makes you feel like you cannot be a part of the people of God. My friends, look at Moses. Look at Moses. He killed a man. And God not only forgives and redeems him, but uses that event to drive him to Midian to encounter God at the burning bush. Do you see how he orchestrates everything for his glory and our good? Do you see how God orchestrates all of our personal histories, even our sins as he handles them sinlessly, that he might receive glory and we might be called into his service in his kingdom, in the church? No matter who you are, salvation is available to you. No matter what you've done, forgiveness is available to you in Christ Jesus. And no matter who you used to be, God can use you mightily, mightily in his church when you make your home with him and with his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to us. Help us, Lord, to let go of the world and everything it has to offer and cling only to Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.